my big fat mouth. So we're in the second week of just a two-week series talking about our mouth. We talked last week about the fact that the Bible tells us that our mouth, our tongue, our words have great power. And James says in Scripture that your tongue, when used in a fashion that God does not intend, is a world of poison, full of deadly evil, set on fire from hell. Strong language. Strong language. And what he follows it up with right there is really the idea behind what we're talking about for these two weeks. He says that with the same mouth that you bless the Lord and bless the people of God when you're here, is the same mouth that for some reason when you roll out on Monday can curse people, can cut people down. And so last week we talked about complaining. And this week I want to talk to you about criticism and how that plays out in your life. And you say, why talk about this on Palm Sunday? Because Jesus made an important and insightful comment that the people, if they didn't cry out and worship, the rocks would. And so... We have a role to play with our words. We have a role to worship with our words. And yet, worship we know is not just what happens in here, but it's a lifestyle. It's a way of life. Worship is uh, you living your life for the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit all the time. Your actions worship. Your words worship. Your silence worships. And we go on and on, but the bottom line is, most of us, we've got a big, fat mouth, and we always get in the way of what we are trying to do for the Lord. Anybody else feel that way? Am I the only one? Three of you. Great. The rest of you might as well leave. Just kidding. So, I was, as I was studying, studying this week, and just thinking through some of the scripture that talks about our words, and specifically about criticism. Uh, And there's a lot, by the way. Jesus spent a lot of time in his book addressing the way that we treat each other, and especially in the New Testament, how churches, how people in the church were going to treat each other. And so we're going to look at some of that, but I was thinking through some of what mentors over the past have said to me in moments where I needed criticism. And as I was thinking about my own life, I listened to a story about another preacher, and he was telling a story about when he preached his first sermon. Thankfully, this is different than my experience, although it probably could have been the same uh, criticism to me. But he, was, he got to preach his first sermon in a Methodist church. And uh, so he had the robe on, and he had all this stuff, and he was, he was young. He was like in his mid-20s. And he... Uh, got up there, and of course, he spoke too fast, he spoke too loud, he said an inappropriate comment, and like all this different stuff, and he says, I'll never forget, afterwards, two things happened. The first one was this little old lady, he said, there's always, every church has a, has a, has a complaining lady in it. Now, you can address that for yourself, ladies, I don't know if that's you or not, I'm going to leave that one to you, husbands, stare straight ahead, don't look to your left or right. All right, no amens at this point. But uh, he said, I'll never forget what she said to me. She said, all those things, she said, you spoke too fast, you spoke too loud, you were difficult to follow, you shouldn't have made that comment, young man. 
and uh, all this stuff. And she, she, she looked at him in the eye and said, I hope you're good at something else because you'll never be a good preacher. And he said, I'll never forget how that felt because I knew God had called me to do it. And now he's been a, a preacher for many years and he's very good at what he does. And so obviously what criticism uh, does to your soul is not what God can do for your soul. But he said it was right after that that another older gentleman came up and said, you know what? You spoke too fast. You spoke too loud. You probably shouldn't have made that comment. But he said, man, I could tell that you really believe what you were preaching. And the illustration is that you never know how much your words can affect somebody. How one word of encouragement can go so far in the life of one person. And on the flip side, and all of you have been on the recipient receiving end of this, is that you never know how one word of criticism can go in somebody's life. And so I want to dive into some of what the Bible says about criticism. Now, if the first reaction you thought was, thank God you're preaching about this, my spouse needs to hear that, or my boss needs to hear that, or whatever it is, uh, just I want to remind you that it's my big fat mouth, not their big fat mouth. And here, here's the reality. The problem with criticism is that a critical spirit is difficult to see in the mirror. You ever thought about that? I was thinking about that this week and just all the things that I notice that are wrong with things. All the things that I notice that are wrong with people or places or this, that, and the other. And it's really difficult to see it in your own life. But I'll never forget, I had a youth pastor tell me that, he said, you know, Mitch, like one of the things that's important is that usually what you tend to criticize is what you're guilty of. And I just like kind of shrunk inside my shirt. I was like, because isn't that true? I start, like I to this day, when I criticize something, that conversation comes up in my mind. And it's really horrifyingly true. And maybe it's not for you, but it was for me. Because we hate when others criticize us. And we can justify it away and we can make excuses. I mean, some of us, we're, we got a PhD in excusing away constructive criticism. But I'm not talking about constructive criticism. I'm talking about a critical spirit. Listen to what Jesus or Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 14. If you have notes today, this would be a good week take notes. We've got them available in your worship guide. You can get on the YouVersion Bible app and go under events and you'll find it. But uh, listen to what the Bible says here. It says, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping one command. So what, you, what Paul's saying is, if you just do one thing right, you will have kept the entire law. It's a big statement. I mean, some of you look at the Bible and you're like, whoa, it's a lot to read and whoa, that's a lot to follow. But it really boils down to one statement, Paul says. One thing. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you'll have kept the whole law. You'll have done everything God requires of you 
to be right with him if you just love your neighbor as yourself. How you doing? <laughs> Probably terrible when you think about it like that. But listen to the insight that he gives us right after that. Because when I think about that, I think about a lot of different things. There's a lot that can go into loving your neighbor as yourself. Taking them cookies, inviting them to Easter, uh, uh, saying hi instead of going in the garage and putting the door down and then getting out of the car. You know, we can like, oh, somebody guilty over that. Okay. All right. Or like me, you're at the grocery store and you see somebody you know and you go to the other aisle. All right. You do, you know, if you're an introvert, you understand that. But um, listen to what he says right after that. This floored me this week. I, it was just of all the things that he could have said. All the righteous acts that you could do for your neighbor. All of the things that the Bible says. He says, if you love your neighbor as yourself, you kept the whole law. And look at the very next statement that he says. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by one another. Think about that in relation to what James says. That James says in chapter 5 that people can bridle all kinds of things. We can tame wild beasts like a giant Clydesdale horse with a little bit in their mouth. And James says, man, if you are able to bridle your tongue, your mouth, your words, he says, you're perfect. He says, nobody can do it. Paul says, if you can love your neighbor you have fulfilled everything God wants you to do. And his warning on the heels of that is for you to watch your big fat mouth. That got me thinking this week. Why would he say that? Why would he go straight to our words when it comes to our worship? What's up with that? And I think what it boils down to is with our words, we tend to worship ourselves. Think about that. Who do we make excuses for? Usually ourselves. Who do we tend to build up above their actual ability? Ourselves. Who do we tend to seek pleasure for? Ourselves. Who do we tend to, and you fill in the blank, where are you struggling? Who do we tend to do things for? And we could go on and on and on. But the bottom line is, our words have power. And how we use them is important. Think about a couple practical examples of that. What if your mouth, your words, was destroying the intimacy in your marriage? a critical spirit over who and what your spouse is and does? What if it was your words that were building a wall between you and your kids? What if it was your words that was distancing you from your friends? What if it was your words that were damaging your ability to witness for Christ? Our words are powerful. 
There's a contrast in Proverbs 12, 18. It goes like this. It says, the words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So basically, our words can kill or our words can heal. And who among us has not done both of those things? If you're a parent, I know you've done those things. If you're married, I know you've done those things. If you woke up today, I know you've done those things. (laughs) Because we all have. And we all need a reminder about the power of our words. Because what happens if you walk into work tomorrow and you've decided, I'm going to be a witness for Christ, but you've been a jerk for 10 years? How strong will your witness be? Without repentance, not very strong. Words. Words. We can go even farther. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians 4.29. He says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. And we tend to think of curse words and we tend to think of all kinds of things. But here's what he had in mind. But only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. You know, one of the first things I put in my head was, yeah, but there's other scriptures that talk about like confronting and, and, and doing things like this. And, but never unattached from loving your neighbor as yourself. Think about that. When, when the Bible tells you to confront people over their sin, what does it say? So that you may gain a brother. It doesn't say so that you can be the mirror that the law is supposed to be. You know, Paul talks about the law of God being a mirror in which you see your sin. You're not the mirror. God's law is the mirror. Your aim is to love one another and build each other up. How can we do that if unwholesome talks come out of our mouth? We can't. How can we be a witness if unwholesome talks come out of our mouth? We can't do it. You know, th- think about that, that small illustration between the lady and the guy who talked to that pastor. You know, on one hand, she was a life taker and he was a life giver. On one hand, she was a confidence shrinker and he was a confidence builder. Our words have the power of life and death. They can kill a spirit or they can heal a spirit. You've all heard the saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's not true at all. That's not any of our life experience. None of it. So I just want to ask you one simple question this week. As you go into Holy Week, as you begin to work towards the cross on Friday and thinking through what Jesus did for you, And how your words are connected to that. I want to ask you one question. Which kind of person do you want to be? Which kind of person do you want to be? And if you're taking notes, there's two blanks there. The first one is this. A fault finder. And the second one is a hope dealer. Not a dope dealer. You're like, I'm going back to Redeemer City Church. Just kidding. A hope dealer. Think about it, though. A fault finder. How easy is it to be a fault finder? They don't chew their gum right. They don't walk right. They don't drive right. They don't work right. Man, they don't even breathe right. 
I mean, have you ever criticized somebody's breathing? Yeah, some of you are laughing. You know you have. Spouses, raise your hand if you have a spouse who criticizes your breathing. Don't do it. All right, don't raise your hand. All of you are smart. You're like, I'm not raising my hand. All right? Think about that. We can find faults, can't we? Especially if we don't want to do something. Do you ever not want to do something that your spouse asked you to do? I mean, some of you are like, oh, I'm, not, I'm not raising my hand at all today. <laughs> Listen, it's healing. Just raise your hand. I'm just kidding. <laughs> like, I, I don't even think I need to preach on it, right? Like, if, if we just go around the room and put, like, this morning on the board, like your words from just this morning. I mean, how many faults? Is, anybody else, the devil just shows up on Sunday morning when you're trying to get to church? <laughs> just does. Just like, where were you all week, Satan? Just spread this out, bro. Can I just, can I just draw that net more personal for you and, and, and bring your attention to how Jesus saw fault finding? I want you to think about the Pharisees. Jesus never got mad at any person outside the church. Did you ever think about that? Who, did we, who do we see in the four Gospels Jesus getting mad at all the time? The Pharisees, right? Who were the Pharisees? Come on, talk to me, class. You're allowed to talk out loud in class. Come on, this is your chance. Some of you went to independent Baptist school like I did, and you weren't allowed to talk. Go ahead, now's your chance. It's freeing. Leaders of the church, right? The keepers of the law. They were... The pastors, they were the priests, they were the guys who were supposed to lead people towards Christ, not away from them. And who did Jesus get mad at? He got mad at the Pharisees. What was his description of the Pharisees? They're like whitewashed tombs. They're all cleaned up on the outside, but they're dead on the inside. Let's go one step farther. In Revelation chapter 12... What does God refer to the devil as? What is Satan's title according to Revelation chapter 12? An accuser of the people of God. If you find it easier to be a fault finder, easier to be an accuser. So so let me push back this way. Do you think Satan's right or wrong when he finds things and accuses you of them before God? Is he right or wrong? He's right. And yet, in Revelation, the climax, the grand closing to the story of the Bible, where God binds Satan and throws him into the pit of hell forever, the thing God chooses to call the devil is an accuser of the people of God. Can I just make a suggestion to those of us that feel a tendency toward being a fault finder. I'm going to tell you what I tell my kids. I don't need any help being a parent. God doesn't need any help being a judge. Amen? Listen, that that sounds good, but like I'm going to have a hard time with that tomorrow at my house. Just so you know. I'm not pointing fingers. I just, I know that in the church, in the 21st century America, our words can crush 
our ability to witness. The things that come out of our mouth can steal so much joy, steal so much life and take it and keep it and squash it. And we just need to know that if Jesus, John 3, 16 and 17, came into the world that the people could be saved. And then verse 17 says that Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. If that was Jesus' mission, we certainly don't need to pick up the mission of finding fault. Here's the bottom line. For people who don't know Christ and for people who do know Christ, we all are guilty. And we all need Jesus. Have you ever met a critical spirit, critical person that you've wanted to be like? We don't. We don't. And in reality, those people are far from Christ. Because when you understand the gospel, when when God reveals to you who you are and who he is, and you begin to wrap your head around uh, your own sin, it makes it much more easy to give grace to people. You know, a lot of times our, our uh, critical spirit is, towards other people is really just an insecurity over what we know is going on in our own life. And we look for ways to build ourselves up and to put others down because we need to feel better in some way. I'm going to jump to the next one here. What, what, what does it mean to be a hope dealer? What, what, what do I, where do I get that from? Listen to this in Romans fifteen thirteen. The Bible says this, may the God of what? Say it with me. Hope. The God of hope. Fill you with all joy and peace as you trust him. Why? Why? So often we stop there. We stop with, oh, God's been so good to me. That's where we tend to stop, isn't it? But listen to what he says. So that, if you've got a real Bible, a paper Bible, not one of those fake ones that I used last week, <laughs> you should circle that, so that. A lot of times we forget the connection. So that you may, what? Overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. In Romans 8, Paul says there's No condemnation in Christ. That the Spirit helps us in our weakness. That Jesus is at the right hand of God. That you are more than a conqueror in Christ. And then he says that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither present or future nor any powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of Christ. That's what Holy Week's all about. Freedom. And God says that he's filled your life with hope in the cross so that it might overflow into the lives of other people. You want to be a good witness this week as we get ready for Easter? Take some of those cards, and when you go to invite people, just overflow with hope. You don't got to be an apologetics professor. You don't have to have the whole Bible memorized. You, you might have been doing this for like 10 minutes. You might have gotten saved when we sang that song. <laughs> and you can be a hope dealer this week. Because there's only one thing in the world, and we talk about it all the time here, that 
There's only one thing that separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. And that is that when every other religion, including atheism, looks at you and says, you need to make a way for yourself. The Bible says you can't make a way for yourself and God's going to come and make one for you. Everybody else tells you to rise to the occasion. Jesus says you can't, so I'll come to you. That's the difference. That's the difference. And that is how you witness. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, you're to be his witness, but he offers you power from the Holy Spirit. Well, what does that look like? That looks like the Holy Spirit filling you with hope about who you were and who you are in Christ and overflowing that hope to other people. That's what it means to have power to witness. 1 Timothy 1, Jesus is called our hope. Titus 2, Jesus is called the blessed hope. 1 Peter 1, Jesus is called the living hope. Satan's called the father of lies, the deceiver, the prince of darkness, the accuser. But Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the living hope. Think about that in your life today. Where do you find yourself on the scale? A fault finder or a hope dealer? Now let me tie the knot, okay? So for some of you, this is a very convicting thing. And it's a very God's law thing. But I want you to know that in Christ, there's freedom. That what you need today to move past your critical spirit And to a degree, all of us need to do this today. For us to move past our critical spirit, we have to look to Jesus. You see, because what's going to take your eyes off of the things that are wrong is looking to the only thing that is right. Amen? Because we're all on a level playing field when it comes to being a good person. We have good moments, but we also have a lot of bad moments. And that's true for all of us, whether we've got money or no money, whether we've got family or no family, whether we've got whatever. We're all on a level playing field in eternity. And the only thing that can make us right is Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's always about Jesus. Here's where Paul lands with it in 2 Corinthians 13, 11. He says, finally, (laughs) that's a good word, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice, rejoice, strive for full restoration, encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. We want to invite the presence of God in this place. And what he says the key to that is, is to give each other a break. Listen, here's the deal. I know you're a sinner. You know, somebody asked me a question this week about, you know, why we don't do confession or things like that. And I, you know, the bottom line for me, you can come confess your sins to me. And I'll just be like, I understand, brother. <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> I don't have any saving power. God doesn't authorize me 
to have saving power. But he does authorize me to point you to the one who has saving power. Amen? Amen. And so, as we close today, I just want you to stand with me. The band's going to come up. They're going to play another song, a great song. We're going to take an offering in a minute. But before we do that, I want to encourage you to take a minute as you listen to just the music play in the background. I just want you to take a minute and just confess before God where you fall short in this place. And we all do. We all have something to pray about. And then I just want you to ask the Holy Spirit, because He promises to do it, to fill you with hope. That if today you walked in here hopeless, defeated, that in Christ you would find hope today. If you've never crossed the line of faith, given your life to Christ, why don't you do that right now? The Bible says if you just confess Jesus as Lord with your mouth and believe in your heart that He is God, you will be saved. It's that simple. Because it's not about what you can do, it's about what He has done. And so why wouldn't you do that right now? And then come talk to me in the back. I've got a little book that I'd love to give you. That's just some next steps, some, some first steps as a Christian. It's really simple. But if you know Christ, you too can ask that the Holy Spirit would fill you with hope. It's one of the first things to go as Satan starts to beat you down. As you start to beat yourself down. One of the first things to go is your hope. And then Jesus said, as we looked at those scriptures, that's no way to live. You need to be filled with hope so that you can overflow with 